0: Welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 11th of March with me, Ian Welsh. A few days ago, I spoke with Patrick Mallett from ICL and Leonie Arora from the Tropical Forest Alliance about some new guiding practices just released by ICL that provide some pointers as to what constitutes best practice for companies as engagement in landscape and jurisdictional approaches matures. That conversation is to come, as is an update on the Innovation Forum Future Food event in May from my colleague, Natasha Podnar. First, though, is some sustainable business news. Some good news from Chain Reaction Research which has found that 2021 deforestation in Indonesia, Malaysia and Papua New Guinea linked to the development of palm oil plantations has fallen to the lowest level since 2017. Around 19,000 hectares were cleared for palm oil plantation development in 2021 compared to 74,000 in 2018, 90,000 in 2019 and 38,000 in 2020. Chain Reaction Research has attributed the 2020 decline to economic contraction in Indonesia and pandemic-related restrictions. Indeed, deforestation had been expected to rebound in 2021 as palm oil prices rose. Indonesia's economy grew in 2021, prompting some to speculate that the perceived link between economic growth and deforestation has been broken. The no-deforestation, no-peat, no-exploitation policies that many international brands and buyers have committed to seem to be making a difference. The new research finds that none of the top ten palm oil-linked deforestation culprits can be conclusively linked to supply chains covered by NDPE policies. In 2021, the top 10 largest deforesters cleared 42% of the total deforestation. The crisis in Ukraine is going to have significant impacts on the global supply and cost of food because of questions over the availability of crops grown in Ukraine and Russia and through disruption to fertilizers reliant on Russian raw materials, according to the boss of Yara International talking to the BBC. Sven Tor Holstether, whose business is one of the world's largest fertiliser companies, pointed out that moving into the Northern Hemisphere spring is a critical time for delivery of fertilisers. He predicts that crop yields may drop by up to 50% in some instances without fertilisers. It's not a question of if there will be a global food crisis, but how large it is going to be, he told the BBC. Nutrients such as potash and phosphate are essential ingredients in many fertilizers, much of which comes from Russia. As is ammonia, the manufacturer of which is reliant on large quantities of natural gas. There's a double problem of the market price in gas being highly volatile, in addition to reliance on Russian exports. Global food and the beverage brands have been scrambling to announce cessation of business in Russia since the facilities started in Ukraine, following initial criticism of some for not acting fast enough. Fast-food giant McDonald's is to temporarily close all its 850 outlets in Russia and will take a significant financial hit in the process, with $2 billion of revenues, 90% of their total, coming from Russian and Ukrainian operations. Starbucks, Pepsi and Coca-Cola are among the other high-profile brands that have ceased Russian trading. The long-term implications are unsurprisingly unclear. Many brands, McDonald's being one, have pledged to continue to support their Russian employees and to pay Ukrainian ones in full. UK think tank, the Energy Transitions Commission, has found that direct carbon dioxide removal from the air is going to be essential to mitigate climate change. New research concludes that CO2 removal alongside rapid and deep decarbonisation can give the planet a 50% chance of limiting warming to 1.5 Celsius. The Commission says that a combination of natural climate solutions such as reforestation and better soil management, engineered solutions such as direct air capture of CO2, and hybrid solutions such as combining bioenergy and carbon capture and storage are required. Launching the Mind the Gap Report, Adir Turner, Chair of the Energy Transitions Commission, highlighted the role that carbon offsets and the carbon markets were going to have to play and the importance of well-functioning markets that ensure cash generated is directed towards projects that provide genuine reductions in greenhouse gas emissions. And demonstrating the scale of change required for the net zero transition, China has announced plans for 450 gigawatts of solar and wind power generation capacity at sites in the Gobi Desert and other arid zones, as reported by Reuters and others. This will help, in part, meet Chinese President Xi Jinping's pledge to bring the national wind and solar capacity to 1,200 gigawatts by 2030. This year, the Innovation Forum Spring Event Series will include forums on business and climate action, responsible supply chains and ethical trade, and sustainable apparel and textiles. All details of who is participating and how to register for tickets is available on the Innovation Forum website. Coming up from the 10th to 12th of May is this year's online Future of Food Conference. To find out how the event is shaping up, I caught up with Innovation Forum's Natasha Podnar. Welcome back to the podcast, Natasha.
1: Hi Anne. how are you?
0: I'm very well. Tell me, how is the event in May coming together?
1: Coming yeah, together really well. We have had lots of great people joining in the last few weeks since I spoke to you last, great organizations and even some additional content.
0: Now I know you've been working on the agenda, so what sort of some of the emerging themes that are coming as the agenda is being developed?
1: Yeah, now we've kind of been finalizing a bit more can kind of see the structure more as on the first day, we're really looking at food systems transformation, which I think that'd be a great opening day, looking at a few different climate sessions and climate ambition around that as well. As we move into day two, we're going to take a little bit more focus around farming, land use and regenerative agriculture. And then the final day, we'll be focusing more around innovation, transparency and trust. So it's the main themes that we've broken it down into for the three days.
0: Are there any new panels then that have come together across the three days?
1: We have recently, actually just in the last week, added a session that's going to be looking at global commitments to tackling food waste. So this session will be looking at the supply chain solutions that can improve productivity whilst reducing costs inputs. And in. so I think that will be a really interesting session. The idea is that we will have some brands talking about their experiences and challenges that they've been facing, and we'll also have some innovators pitching some solutions to to waste.
0: Food waste is a massive issue, obviously. How about any new participants that have come on board?
1: Yeah, we've had some some great people joining. It's a steady, slow of people coming in. Uh, Since we spoke last, uh, we've had Regrow come on board to support the forum, which is fantastic. We've had the Sustainable Food Trust join, Metro, and the Compass Group as well. Good few people have just joined in the last week or so.
0: What are the standout sessions that you're looking forward to at the event?
1: Well, you know me. I always really like the climate-focused sessions. So we have one session on the first day that's looking at climate action in practice. So this will be looking at how leading food brands can decarbonize agriculture. And already to confirm to speak on that session, we have the executive vice president of global ice cream from Unilever, as well as the head of agriculture procurement from PepsiCo. So I think it's going to be a really interesting session.
0: How can listeners get involved, Natasha?
1: So the best way to get involved is to register online. We have a discount deadline coming up at the end of next week. You can book online to save £100. You can also obviously get in touch with me directly. There'll be contact details connected to the podcast. And if you're interested in speaking, also please get in contact. Or if you want further opportunities for sponsoring or partnering on the event, then Anita Thompson is the head of partnerships who will be the best contact for that.
0: Great. And these contact details are, of course, on the Future of Food conference page on the Innovation Forum website. But that is important, though. If you want to come, then do remember you can save £100 on three-day passes if you secure your pass by the 18th of March. Natasha, thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Ian.
0: Continuing our series of conversations about the maturation of landscape approaches and jurisdictional initiatives for companies being serious about sustainability and supply chains, a few days ago I spoke with Patrick Mallet, Director of Innovations at ICL, and Leone Aurora, Landscapes and Partnerships Lead at the Tropical Forest Alliance. Okay, we're going to be talking a bit about some guiding practices that ICL have released to help company actions and landscapes and jurisdictions be effective. Patrick, why don't you start us off? What are the new guiding practices and why have they been devised? So these
2: guiding practices are very much the product of a collaboration between a number of initiatives that are thinking about and working on landscape and jurisdictional approaches. So TFA, of course, and Proforest, WWF, CDP, they're all part of the steering group, but they're also part of a broader network that ICL convenes of these practitioners. And what we've done is pull together our current best understanding of what good practice looks like for how companies can engage in landscape and jurisdictional approaches. And so this is very much a concise, stepwise guiding document that companies can use in order to think about what are the pieces that need to be in place? How can I make sure that my investments are having as big an impact as possible? Let's just have some definitions. We talk about landscape
0: approaches, we talk about jurisdictional approaches. What is the difference if any, between a landscape and a jurisdictional approach?
2: Yeah, they're very similar. And really, jurisdictional approaches are a subset of landscape approaches. If we think that fundamentally, these are both about how can we address critical sustainability challenges collaboratively and at scale, we're looking at what kinds of collective action are effective. And landscape approaches is really the broad umbrella term. It's about how can different initiatives, different organizations come together and work collaboratively in a landscape. And then jurisdictional initiatives is just a subset of that where we're talking very much about jurisdictional boundaries. So something like a district, and importantly, about engaging local governments. And this is important in part because. One of the things we want to do and the advantages of landscape and jurisdictions is that we can embed these actions in local government practice so that they extend beyond the period of any individual project.
0: Yes, it would certainly had been a feature that local governments perhaps were a little bit left out of some of the approaches in the past and if you're going to involve local people you need to get the local government's involvement as well. Leonie, how do you characterise the changing approach of companies towards landscape engagement?
3: I think that the change approach to landscape engagement is sort of like side by side with the changing approach to supply chain action itself, right? So the key shift in supply chain is the recognition that to achieve transformation, companies need to work on their supply chain, but not only to make sure that the commodities that they buy are deforestation free, they need to assist and work with their suppliers to make sure that those suppliers become deforestation free across their businesses. And, of course, to lead the way by example. Now, the other key shift in terms of landscape engagement is the realization, the recognition that to address deforestation at scale. Companies need to work with farmers, smallholders, local communities, local governments, basically all the other stakeholders that are making use and benefiting from the landscapes that produce those commodities. So companies need to support sustainable land use efforts beyond the supply chain itself in the production landscapes. And I think this makes complete sense, right? Because these landscapes actually provide various ecosystem services and other services, you know, like governance, that make commodity production possible and could be sustainable in the first place.
0: Patrick, let's think a bit more about the guiding practices
2: specifically
0: and the key concepts
2: embedded in them. The guiding practices are very much just a succinct set of things for companies to think about. They're like the steps for engagement. And it's broken down into four practice areas. And it's really intuitive, very straightforward. The first one is just figuring out where it makes the most sense to invest. Where do you have potential supply, potential risks with that supply or opportunities where you can affect significant change? And then second practice area is about how you maximize impact through collective action. How can you ensure that you're Investments are really delivering as much as they can in terms of sustainability impacts. The third one is about measuring effectiveness. And this is not just about the effectiveness of your actions, but of the landscape performance. It's quite tricky territory to understand what is the change in the landscape that's come about as a result of those actions And then finally, it's about communicating credibly and clearly. And practically, the strategies that can improve company actions are really quite intuitive. And so if we think about how can we have the most impact in a region, it's about engaging local stakeholders, as Leonie mentioned, to understand where are the critical gaps or what to focus on. It's about being intentional about the types of actions you're taking. You know, how can you understand what the intended results are of your actions so that you can clearly connect them with your sustainability goals. And it's about investing in not just the actions, but in that structure, that multi-stakeholder governance or monitoring that helps to embed your actions in a larger process that ensures the, the long-term impact of your system.
0: Leonie, can you give us some examples then of what, from your perspective, best practice looks like?
3: Building from what Patrick and ISIL has developed, if you look at the first principle, for example, right, if where to invest and what's the appropriate level of effort to invest. Well, companies, to determine where to, to invest, they can do their own assessments for sure, but also they can make use of what is done, what has been done collectively, right? Uh, just put one example, the CGF Force Positive Coalition of Action, this is the 21 biggest retailers and manufacturers that we and ProForest are facilitating, they have these commodity working groups, working on soy, palm oil, beef, and pulp and paper, and they determine together what areas, which regions are the most important to engage. So companies can lean in on, on those, uh, you know, prioritization also done collectively to make it even easier. As to the level of support, this coalition, this CGR Force Positive Coalition of Action, for example, has agreed that they would make efforts to transform landscapes in an area equivalent to their production-based footprint. So this is the area that they need to produce the commodities that they source. These are just examples that others can use and can learn from.
0: Do you see a change to really companies thinking cross-commodity? You mentioned individual commodity working groups. How are companies evolving to really make sure that they're thinking across commodity? Because that must in itself be a landscape approach, thinking about more than simply a single commodity at any one time.
3: Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the strengths of landscape and jurisdictional approaches, right? In, in essence, it looks at the entire landscape or jurisdiction. And indeed, like this coalition, when they have determined these principles of collective action, and one of the principles is if the landscape produces more than one commodity that they source from, these landscapes should be priority, right, because you hit two birds with one stone. And this is also why landscape management approaches can be so powerful is the engagement of local government, because the local government has the mandate to govern basically the entire jurisdiction. And by definition, it will be cross commodities. When initiatives work with local governments, they will work with the development agency, the whole agriculture agency not specifically working on one commodity. Even though one commodity can be an entry point, essentially it will be the whole jurisdiction.
0: Patrick,
2: any particular examples of best practices you'd like to highlight? There's a good one that picks up just on that last point, which is that this isn't just about companies going in and doing whatever actions they think are needed, but really trying to align those actions with local priorities. So, for example, where you have landscape and jurisdictional initiatives in place, like PCI, the, the Produce, Conserve, and Include initiative in Mato Grosso in Brazil, they've actually developed a pitch book, which is a summary of the projects that they think need to be prioritized for investment in their region in order to achieve the collective goals. And so that's really useful for companies to understand better how and where they can invest in a way that reflects local priorities. The other one I would bring in then is on the monitoring side. Now, as I said, we haven't made such advances here, but there are examples of good initiatives that have set priorities, set the types of things that need to be measured. So for example, LTKL in Indonesia, it's Association of Indonesian District Governments that many of the listeners are probably familiar with. They have a a regional competitiveness framework, which is their set of metrics that that are being measured across those districts. And Landscale, which I I believe you've had on the podcast before as well, they have an international framework of metrics for measuring performance that both try to be consistent across jurisdictions while allowing flexibility for measuring locally relevant metrics in different places.
0: Thinking in terms of TFA's and other organizations' broader work on landscape and landscape approaches, how do you see these ICO practices fitting in with that broader work?
3: I think these guiding practices really reflect our current collective understanding on what is important for companies to consider. I also really like it that it's really condensed, right? It's five pages of content. It's manageable to read, but really rich and with links to further resources like patrick already mentioned earlier it, it's intended to complement and underpin other frameworks like source up landscape, accountability framework initiative and also cdp for example cdp's questionnaire this year already includes specific section for companies to disclose their engagement in production landscapes but i think what's important to highlight also is that these uh, guidances are not static right they, they will grow as our experiences grow and especially as there is momentum, there's more momentum building for companies to engage at landscape scale. I mean, I was very excited to see how more and more companies are making commitments related to climate nature people. And these are not just companies sourcing commodities. These are also like others, right? Like Amazon, Salesforce, you know, with the leaf coalition. And engagement at landscape interest jurisdiction scale is definitely key for companies to reach these commitments. And more importantly, to translate these global commitments to local
0: priorities. Yes, and I can certainly echo the fact that it was great to find out that there was only a five page report that's been pushed together by ICI. I certainly commend it, and we will have a link to it in the podcast description. Patrick, then,
2: what will success look like for this initiative? Building on Leone's last point, it's very much about getting more companies engaged and creating an easy and accessible pathway that enables them to invest in landscapes and jurisdictions in a way that has meaningful impact on the ground and lets them communicate about their impacts. This is a nascent and emerging space, and it's very much about how can we continue to learn from existing examples to try to capture that evolving best practice and be able to present it in a way that is supportive of companies. For us going forward, success is very much about continuing to convene a lot of the technical practitioners that are thinking about these issues and trying to find ways that we can provide the tools and resources like those that are emerging from SourceUp or Landscale that can help companies to engage and to really drive impact at scale. Leonie, for you then, what would you be looking out for as pointers for success?
3: Very similar to Patrick, I think we're already seeing an increased number of companies and definitely more diverse companies looking at landscape engagement, but we still need more. What we want to see is to how engagement beyond company supply chains and how company engagement to help local stakeholders achieve sustainability at scale is a part of a normal way of doing business. And I think what we also like to see is more collaborations and collective actions that involve the private sector. And these includes producers, traders, manufacturers, retailers with stakeholders on the ground. I think smallholders, farmers, local communities, local governments and civil society. If that can happen, we can achieve so many things and have the things that we achieve also sustain in the longer period.
0: Sure. It's certainly been great to see that there's a real shift towards the how rather than the why when it comes to landscape approaches. And ice practices are just part of that. It's been interesting talking to you today, Leonie and Patrick. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Thanks so much. Ian.
3: Thanks a lot for having us.
0: And there is a link to the new ICL guiding principles in the podcast description. The Innovation Forum website is the place to go for all the latest analysis and interviews. Look out this week for the latest climate and business innovation column from climate specialist Mike Scott. And don't forget also to take advantage of the discount available now to register for the Future of Food conference coming up from the 10th to the 12th of May. Everything you need to know about this and all of the Innovation Forum spring events is available online. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh. Until next week, goodbye.